and welcome to the Focal Therapy Clinic. My name is Claire Delmar, and in this audio series, I'm going to introduce you to some issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, and almost never talked about. Earlier this month, prostate cancer was acknowledged as the most commonly diagnosed cancer in the UK. And with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. In the second of our series, I'm speaking with Raj Nigam, consulting urologist at the Focal Therapy Clinic and a leading innovator in imaging-led diagnostics and targeted treatment for prostate cancer. Raj has been a vocal advocate for focal therapy from his base at the Royal Surrey Hospital and has contributed to several pivotal clinical studies and trials on prostate imaging and focal therapy. He is also an acknowledged expert on andrology and in particular, the use of hormones in treating urological disease. Raj, thanks for joining me. Hi, Claire. Thanks very much for having me. So why don't we just um, dive right in? Um, I think this is a, a, an issue that's certainly of interest to a lot of our patients, which we'll um, come on to in a few seconds. But, but before I launch right into the role of hormones in treating urological disease, I'd really like you to just to, to say in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in your own way, what was your journey to becoming a leading practitioner and a champion of focal therapy? Yeah, so um, I've been treating men with prostate cancer as a consultant for over 20 years. And I've seen huge changes uh, over that time frame from the advent of uh, minimally invasive radical prostatectomy. Uh, for example, when I was training, uh, all radical prostatectomies were open. Uh, they then transitioned to laparoscopic or uh, keyhole surgery and then moved on to a robotically controlled robotic prostatectomy. Um, so there have been huge changes there. There have been massive changes in uh, the improvements of the operation and the side effect profiles that they uh, create. Um, we've also seen great changes in radiotherapy uh, in terms of shortening the duration of therapy and the advent of intensity modulated uh, radiotherapy. So whilst there have been significant changes in the two main radical uh, treatment options, um, I still felt that there were a lot of men that were perhaps being over-treated. We had no way of uh, confirming this prior to their procedures. Mm -hmm. We only found out once they'd had the radical prostatectomy that, oh, they only had a small amount of cancer there or they had a low-grade cancer there. Mm -hmm. So therefore, uh, we have been seeking new means of diagnosis and more accurate means of diagnosis. So I came to this from uh, a little bit of disillusionment with the type of biopsies that we were doing. There were transrectal biopsies, which have subsequently been shown to be um, very insensitive. Uh, in the best studies, only 48% uh, sensitivity. Mm -hmm. uh, I was also concerned that there were significant septic complications in a small group of men uh, who were having transrectal biopsies, but that in that small group of men, they were quite severe infections, sometimes leading to intensive care. So when transperineal biopsies came along, it's something that I jumped at, and we moved forward fairly rapidly in developing transperineal biopsies, and then moving on to far more precision diagnostics in the form of incorporating MRI scans into the fusion process of carrying out the biopsies. Mm -hmm. So all of that means it's become, you're much more targeted in what you're actually going to treat. Absolutely. One way to put it? So, so the concept of making uh, an accurate diagnosis 
then leads on to adapting to techniques which will be minimally invasive and minimally harmful to the mm-hmm. man and therefore creating less side effects than the two traditional radical options. Mm-hmm. And that's where focal therapy obviously comes into that's play. That's precisely where focal therapy comes mm-hmm. in. Once you know where your cancer is and you know the type and the grade of the cancer on a well-conducted MRI scan and the well-targeted biopsies, you can then safely say, all right, we will treat that area of the prostate cancer with minimal damage to surrounding organs and therefore limit the side effects. Yeah, I mean, it's wonderful to hear that, you know, this was all out of great concern for your patients and for, you know, the sort of unnecessary and possibly over-treatment that they had been receiving, you know, prior to this actually coming into court. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I I was... um, one of the first surgeons to go over to France to learn the techniques back in 2006. Uh, and at that stage, we were using high-intensity focused ultrasound for the whole gland. But since then, we have found out that it actually it can be much more accurate in its uh, treatment, and therefore we have moved on to focal uh, therapy. So, you know, one way of looking at, at this is, you know, things are becoming more precise, more accurate, more targeted. And, you know, can you actually extend that to say more, more personalized? Absolutely. Um, The one aspect of men and uh, their diagnosis of prostate cancer is that we know that a number of treatment options for early localized prostate cancer are equivalent in their cancer outcomes, i.e. a lot of men will have the same outcome in terms of uh, survival and so on, regardless of whether they have active surveillance, radical prostatectomy, or radiotherapy. And that's based on a a 10-year study, a 10 to 12-year study, the PROTEC trial. So we know that from an oncological, i.e. a cancer point of view, Mm -hmm. um, we are achieving good good rates uh, with all the treatments. But they all have differing side effect profiles. And and that's where we come in, um, in the sense that uh, the radical treatments are far more morbid in terms of creating erectile dysfunction and far more morbid in terms of creating incontinence, both of which are very, very damaging to a man's function Mm -hmm. and self-esteem. And we know from our own uh, very large studies, uh, multi-center studies that we have carried out in the UK, that um, at five to six years, not only is there oncological equivalence uh, to the traditional radical treatments, but also a vast improvement in the side effect and complication profile uh, Mm -hmm. following focal therapy. So, I mean, back to this idea of personalization and, and bringing the patient into the decision process, how, how does your work in andrology play into this? Does it actually help? Yes, that so, yeah, absolutely. So hugely. So for many, many years, I have been uh, managing andrology clinics, whereby I have see, been seeing men who have had some of the traditional Uh, prostate uh, cancer treatments in terms of radiotherapy and radical prostatectomy. Um, Andrology, uh, for those who don't know it, is a field, is a subspecialty of urology, uh, whereby we deal with men who have problems with uh, hormones, uh, who have problems with erectile dysfunction, who have infertility problems, and in in particular, penile problems, uh, as well as incontinence. So therefore, I'd been seeing a lot of men over the years who had had um, a a good uh, cancer operation or good cancer treatments, but were uh, paralyzed by the side effects in terms of their ongoing function. 
Mm-hmm. So you see, one has to look beyond um, oncological control when it comes to um, cancer treatments uh, for, for early prostate cancer. Mm. Um, one has to start thinking about, okay, after one year, two years, the man might be thinking, great, I've got over my cancer, but why am I incontinent uh, for the rest of my life? Why am mm. I uh, c- c- I'm not able to have an erection again? Mm-hmm. So all of these things need to be taken into consideration at the time of discussion with the patient and what sort of level of side effects they will tolerate. There are Mm -hmm. some men who will say, I will never want to be incontinent. Mm. Uh, There are some men who say, well, I'm not too fussed about erectile function Mm. uh, at this stage, but I do not want to be incontinent. I mean, Um, can I add mental health into some of those side effects? Does that play into, you know, some of the um, whole sort of person Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And it's not always what one might think. So um, any cancer diagnosis has an effect on the mental health of the individual. We know that. Uh, But men in particular who are worried about what is now the commonest cancer in the UK uh, by far will be considering what's it going to leave me with? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, is it worth me continuing with this treatment in terms of... uh, uh, the side effects I'm going to get. Mm -hmm. So there are some men who will say, um, you know, I've got a cancer. I don't care what side effects I get. Um, I just want the cancer cut out. But the numbers of those men, I feel, are now declining. Mm-hmm. Um, that used to be the case, uh, you know, the sort of cut it out doc uh, policy. Uh, mm-hmm. But now more and more men are beginning to look around and saying, well, what are my alternatives? And are there less morbid treatments that I can have? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting because, um, you know, we're actually getting approached by quite a few men, and I'd say it's, it's on the increase, who have early stage prostate cancer diagnoses um, and seem to have been put on hormone therapy. Um, it, and again, um, this is, you know, kind of observational, and, but it seems to be happening more during the COVID-19 pandemic. So I want to throw this out to you. Is, is there an increasing use of hormone therapy in the NHS during this time? And, and if there is, what effect do you think this is having? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, this is uh, an unfortunate negative outcome of the uh, coronavirus era, if you like, um, that um, traditional treatments have all had to be halted um, for at least three or four months, in particular radical prostatectomy and uh, radiotherapy. And as a result of this, men have inadvertently been advised to go on to hormonal therapy uh, without, I hate to say, you know, proper and adequate discussion. Okay. Now, this is not the fault of any individual uh, surgeon or doctor. It's just the position that they have been placed in, um, mm-hmm. in terms of trying to control the condition, at least so we think, um, with limited time and often a, t- a telephone consultation uh, to say, we're having to put you on hormones until and unless uh, we start our services up and running again. Okay. And you know, what, what, how are you seeing this play out with um, some of your patients? The men that have been put on hormones, the vast majority of them don't like it. Um, we have to start off by by qualifying this because there are some men that have to have hormones. So uh, there are men who have known metastatic disease, i.e. Uh, disease that has spread to the bones or to mm-hmm. the lymph nodes and beyond, and they will have to have hormone therapy to try and control uh, the, the disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some men 
who they know that they are definitely going to have radiotherapy um, and it has been shown that those men will do better with at least a three-month period of antigen deprivation therapy prior to having radiotherapy. Okay. So those two groups aside, there are a lot of other men that have been put on uh, hormonal therapy, which under normal circumstances would not have been. Right, right. And this is a problem. This is a problem because uh, hormonal therapy does not come without uh, side effects. And some men who have not been advised uh, which side effects to, to experience um, are now complaining about it uh, and wondering why. Uh, they're yeah. getting these side effects. Yeah. Um, so I see this in my uh, subspecialty of andrology quite a lot, not necessarily because men have had hormonal treatment, but they are what we call hypogonadal in the sense that they have low testosterone levels. Right. And the hormonal therapy that we're talking about in prostate cancer mimics that exactly because the hormonal therapy is designed to reduce the testosterone levels in men. Right, right. I mean, for example, some of the men who come to us will say that, um, you know, they're particularly fit, they may be in their 70s. Um, a lot of them are very committed to sport, to exercise, to, um, you know, healthy, healthy living and a, and a very high quality, active quality of life. Um, and then they tell us they've been put on hormone therapy, and it's, you know, they become a different person, both mentally and physically. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, we see this all the time in our andrology clinics, and we are now seeing it in the uh, hormone therapy population. Mm. So essentially, there are a number of uh, serious side effects that hormonal therapy can have. Um, we all know about sexual side effects uh, that a decreased testosterone level can have, in particular, loss of libido, uh, erectile difficulties, ejaculatory difficulties, uh, and so on. And this can lead to a, a complete loss of confidence uh, mm -hmm. in the man. Um, we also know about its effect on uh, muscle mass and bone density, particularly with longer-term uh, treatment. And, and this can lead to increasing uh, and early fatigue, uh, a desire of not wanting to do exercise, yeah. a constant yeah. feeling of weakness. Mm -hmm. um, so those are physical, real physical uh, issues that men are experiencing whilst on hormonal therapy. And, and cognitively? I think that the effects of testosterone on the brain are under-recognized and underplayed. But men who come to my andrology clinics uh, often do complain uh, of a loss of cognition, a loss in the speed of thought. Uh, they may still be at work uh, and they're finding that they've got sort of brain fog uh, type symptoms. Um, we know that you can also experience mood changes yeah. and depression. Uh, yeah. with low levels of testosterone. Sounds like menopause, but um, unfortunately it's enforced on these people. Absolutely. Yes, I forgot to mention hot flushes. Hot flushes are a very, mm. very common sign of, mm -hmm. uh, of hormonal therapy. So it's interesting because in talking with some of these men, you know, some of them haven't had this, um, this, this hormone therapy, you know, sort of imposed or, you know, offered to them. And you know, they've been offered other things or, or simply waiting. So, so one of the things that has come into my mind is there, there appears to be, you know, almost a, a health inequality around the country. Um, and, you know, I know that we talk about health inequality, especially during the pandemic amongst different, different types of population groups, but I'm interested in your thoughts on how this might apply to men with prostate cancer. Yeah, so um, health inequalities exist in prostate cancer. Uh, this has been recognized over, over many years. Uh, in fact, there was indeed an all-party uh, parliamentary group 
which uh, published a, a document about 10 years ago uh, talking about health inequalities in, in cancer in general, but yeah. also in prostate cancer uh, mm -hmm. in particular. Um, and a number of uh, authors have, uh, have discussed this, uh, this field. Uh, there are essentially a number of areas where there are health inequalities. The most obvious one and the most current one uh, you have alluded to uh, is based on ethnicity. And uh, we know uh, factually, both here and in the United States, uh, that black men, um, in this country we call them Afro-Caribbean, in, in America they're called African-Americans, mm -hmm. um, have double the average risk uh, yeah, of right. being diagnosed with prostate cancer. Yeah. Um, we also know that in those men, uh, that awareness appears to be quite low of prostate cancer. And that there have been studies which have shown that they have poorer experiences of, uh, of NHS care. And, and it, it, this is the same in, uh, in, in the United States. Uh, mm -hmm. We know that they have double the risk of dying uh, from uh, prostate cancer. They have higher grade disease and it presents earlier. Uh, so this is an area that certainly needs targeting in terms of trying to address an inequality uh, based on ethnicity. Mm. But there are other inequalities, and, and, and one of them that we're finding, uh, and appears to be partly geographical, is based upon age. Um, we are finding, uh, and this is again factually shown, that men uh, over the age of 75 tend to have a poorer outcome in prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. even though the, their level of fitness, if you allow for all of those features, may be just as good as a man of 65. So there appears to be a subconscious uh, sort of bias saying, okay, you've reached 75 and so on. Yes, you might be fit and well, but actually we may not go down this route or this treatment route and so on, and we may just watch things and so on. So there is a sort of uh, inequality uh, based upon age, and this is, appears to be manifest in terms of mortality rates in the UK oh. as well, uh, that the largest area, uh, largest group of men that die uh, in terms of age are between 75 and 84. And has this uh, been documented or investigated in any Yeah, absolutely. Way? I yeah. think it's been highlighted uh, quite a lot. And, and so, you know, there should be targeted programs, at least that was advised, that uh, men in, in that age range and above the age of 70 um, should have the same access to treatments and uh, diagnosis that men of a younger age do. And there is definitely an inequality of access uh, you know, depending upon age, partly because we know that a lot of men who develop prostate cancer later in life uh, are unlikely to succumb from it. But yes. the actual mortality data suggests that that is the highest age group uh, mm. at which men die. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that came to light during the pandemic was, um, you know, that this phrase that was used with a lot of the different um, country-level data on COVID was, you know, some people are dying of COVID and some are dying with COVID. And, you know, this was kind of, re you know, relating more to... Yeah, it's, it's replicated. And it I, I think so that one of the things... State, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is one of the things that has been shown that the health inequalities which existed in a lot of other conditions, including prostate cancer, appear to now being replicated in, in the COVID era in yeah. the sense that you know, older people perhaps are not getting access to the higher level intensive care older people are being diagnosed more and therefore they are dying more. Similarly, the um, ethnicity has come into, uh, into force as well. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, and the third area that uh, I think it's important to uh, highlight, apart from age and ethnicity, mm-hmm. is uh, equality of access. Um, access to diagnosis, access to good information, and access to all the treatment options. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I've discovered in my work in focal therapy is that um, there's a huge difference in different geographical areas around the country about awareness of other treatment options other than the two standard radical ones of mm-hmm. radical surgery and radical uh, radiotherapy. Mm-hmm. Even though and all I'll, men have a right to this treatment, as you said before, and that's codified in law. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think it is important that a discussion should take place uh, with the man at the time of diagnosis of mm-hmm. all of his treatment options and not just what is available uh, locally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that is beholden on all of us uh, to, to do that. Right. Raj, this has been really helpful, and I think both for our patients and <clears throat> anybody else interested in hearing about some of these things that are not very often talked about with regard to prostate cancer. So thank you so much for sharing your insights. Um, I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Raj's work and about the Focal Therapy Clinic, visit www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk. And for me, Claire Delmar, see you next time.